Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, and uh, we are coming back now for the third time to this first uh, chapter, where we have been looking at some reasons to be thankful for your church. And drawing on Paul's words here is he spoke about why he was grateful for the church in Thessalonica. You remember he'd only been there for just a couple of months and had been forced out and And now, having ridden from a distance, he's reflecting on not only his time there, but he's reflecting on what's happened since then. And he offers up this prayer as he writes the letter to tell them why he is so grateful for this this church. It's not necessarily the reasons why most people might list for their own church. It's not the reasons most people would expect. As I said the first week, He doesn't mention any elaborate program or any big budgets. There's nothing about their impressive structures or their buildings, nothing about a celebrity preacher or some impressive, you know, music production or any of that stuff. Not that any of those things are necessarily bad, but none of them really matter a hill of beans if you don't have these qualities that Paul is listing out here, because these are the things that are at the core of of what every church ought to be striving for. These are the things that Paul was eagerly looking for whenever he was looking at the foundation of this church, hoping, longing for them to have. And when he saw them, when he saw them in a church or any church or this church, when he heard report about them, his heart overflowed with joy over what he was seeing. These are the things that Paul knew were most important. They were the key things that he looked for in every church. And he wanted, to, he wanted to praise the Lord that he had done this so quickly, so soon, so prominently in this church in Thessalonica. And it helps us to think even about our own church. It helps us to evaluate, to ask, what are those, those things for which we are grateful or should be grateful or should be striving for that we could be grateful when it comes to our church, what are those things that we might sometimes overlook or sometimes get focused on perhaps the wrong thing? What are those things for which we ought to be continually giving thanks? His prayer helps us to answer all those questions. And, and we saw the first one when we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Paul was thankful, you'll notice in verse 2 and 3, for the motives of their ministry. We give thanks to God always for All of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he was thankful for the faith and the love and the hope that produced work, labor and steadfastness within them. Thankful for the motives of their ministry. Secondly, as we saw last week, he was grateful for the evidences of their election. As he says in verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. He says, look, we know that you are the real deal. We know that you are one of God's elect, one of God's chosen. We know because God has brought the word to you in so much power because he providentially sustained not only uh, you through these trials, he even 
He even sustained us in the midst of our own difficulties as we preached the word to you with steadfastness, with deep conviction. We knew that God wanted you to be saved. He had chosen you. And then we saw the change in your lives so that you became imitators of us and then eventually of the Lord, even to the point that you're willing to suffer for your faith. So it was all of these things for which Paul was grateful as he thought back and he remembered what the Lord had done. And then today we come to a third reason why Paul was so grateful for these Thessalonians. And it is their communication, or we might say the communication of their testimony. He was grateful, he says in verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So when Paul gives thanks for this church, when he says, I'm bowing and I'm praying and I'm constantly remembering these things, he thought about how they became imitators and examples, and one of the key ways they were doing that was by letting the word of the Lord sound forth from themselves. Letting it echo forth, letting it sound forth. This is the way Paul presents it. It's as if the word of the Lord is this active force that was, that was emanating out from these believers. And they were, if you will, permitting or allowing it. It is vital, really, that we understand what Paul's saying here, not only in this passage, but in other passages when he speaks about the gospel, because Paul viewed the gospel as, uh, as an active force. That's why he was so grateful, because, uh, because of how he understood the gospel, how it interacts with these believers, with other people, because while on some occasions Paul describes about the gospel or speaks about the gospel in terms of its content, and it's truths, and it's something to be, to be fought for, and guarded, and defended, and all of those things. And he's certainly grateful to the extent that these believers were faithful to that. Paul also saw the gospel as a powerful force that simply needs to be released in order to do its work. And so he was grateful that these believers were faithfully doing that as they ought. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, the word of God is like a caged lion. He says, quote, the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it. See you that lion. We have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Let the pure gospel go forth, Spurgeon said. Let the lion out of its cage. He understood, Spurgeon understood what Paul understood, that the gospel is in itself a powerful force. It doesn't need added power to it. It doesn't need something that we bring to it. It is a power. You remember, it was Paul who said, I am not ashamed. 
of the gospel. And what is it that, that eradicated, if you will, Paul's shame? What is it that, that gave him the kind of boldness and confidence when he says, I'm not ashamed? What caused him to open his lips and declare the gospel no matter what, wherever he went? It wasn't his ability to articulate it. It wasn't a sense of superiority to thwart all those who would ridicule the message. And some of you who struggle with shame and embarrassment and sharing your faith, you need to understand what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. It's powerful. All you got to do is let it out of its cage. All you got to do is open the door and let it, let it go forth. It is a force. And, and Paul understood this. No doubt because of his Jewish upbringing, he had this view of the Word of God. He, under, he remembered passages like Isaiah 55 when the Lord says, As rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth, it will always, uh, it will, excuse me, not return to me empty, but shall always accomplish what I purpose, and shall succeed in what I send it to do. Paul understood the word of the Lord. He understood the gospel to be this powerful force. He understood that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And that when it is proclaimed, when it does go forth, it may indeed and probably often does fall on deaf and hardened ears. But when it strikes the ears of those whom the Lord has prepared, a power is unleashed. God's power is operative through it. And so he tells the Corinthians, he says, look, I decided when I came to you not to come to you with lofty speech and wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And then later on, even in Corinthians, he, told, he, he talked about his, his own ministry. He says, look, we set aside our rights We set aside our privileges. We set aside whatever we could claim maybe for ourselves. We did all of that in in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 12. We endured anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This was his idea. If I just could somehow get myself out of the way of the gospel, if if I could... Get my wisdom out of the way. I don't need to put that. I don't need to put my lofty speech in front of it. I don't need to put my rights, my comforts, whatever it is. All I need to do is just not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. By an unworthy life. By a selfish focus. By a worldly mindset. By something that would somehow cause me to shrink back from proclaiming it as I ought to proclaim it. Just let it out. Let the lion out of the cage. He even tells the Thessalonians over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He asked them, finally brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord would speed ahead or run ahead and be honored as happened 
among you. He says, that's what I, that's all I want. I just pray that you would, uh, that, that God would use me, that the gospel would be this force that we would unleash as it needs to be unleashed, that it would run free as it should run free. And it will do its work. Paul didn't need to help it. We don't need to help it. We just need to speak it, declare it, share it with others. You lose confidence in that. Because you've shared it at times and it's fallen on deaf ears and it's fallen on hard ears. And you conclude that therefore it may not be as powerful as you once experienced it. But just because hardened hearts and deafened ears don't respond to it doesn't mean the gospel's not doing its work. It is a powerful, powerful force. And this is what Paul was thankful for with this, these Thessalonian believers. Listen, Paul had been with them three months. And we know the first three weeks he was with all the Jews in their synagogue. He probably wasn't even with these guys because they're, they're Gentile converts. So he was with them just a small amount of time. He didn't give them any kind of elaborate, extensive, apologetic training. He didn't give them, you know, months and months and years and years of evangelistic training. They didn't have all that under their belt. But Paul was just grateful that they were allowing the Word of God to sound forth from them. To echo forth. The word is exekero, from which we get the idea of echo. And it pictures this... This, uh, this idea of you initiating or you making the first sound, and then once that sound leaves your lips, it is like waves or it's like for a force that just echoes all around, reverberates. You don't know where it's going to end up, but it's going to do its work. It's going to do its work. And this is why Paul says he wasn't ashamed. That's why, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. To be ashamed of it would be like an army charging into battle, leaving its tanks behind because they were embarrassed by them. These are the very things that should lead the charge. The gospel is the very thing that ought to be prominent on our lips. There's nothing to be ashamed of, it's a powerful force. And so Paul says, look, I give thanks because you became imitators, you became examples, imitators of us, examples to others, letting the word of God sound forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. John Chrysostom comments here, he says, as a sweet smelling ointment keeps not its fragrance shut up in itself, but diffuses it afar And the scented air with its perfume so conveys it also to the senses of neighbors. So too illustrious and admirable men do not shut up their virtue within themselves, but by their good report benefit many and render render them better. He's saying, look, this is a a natural course of those who walk uprightly. This is the natural course of a believer. You have experienced the power of the Word of God. It has touched your life. It was the thing that dramatically broke through your darkness. It had nothing to do with your own wisdom, nothing to do with your own righteousness. There is no explanation apart from the powerful working of God opening up your blind eyes. And so it should emanate from you 
for the same purpose in the lives of others. This word of the Lord sounded forth, not only, he says, in your particular regions, that was upper Greece and in Macedonia, but even all the way down south into Achaia, basically northern and southern Greece. And it reached all the way down to Corinth, where Paul was when he was writing this letter. And in some ways, that was to be expected, because as we've noted a number of times, Thessalonica was a strategic city. It was a positioned on a road that was the main road going to Rome. And so most people who were traveling by land to Rome would have passed through there. It was, the, it was called the mother of Macedonia. And so because Paul planted a church there and because these believers were simply faithful to sound forth the gospel, it, it provided a, a massive dynamic where people were, were spreading this word all over the place. And it even had a positive impact had a ripple effect, you might say, in Paul's own missionary work because he says we have no need to say anything because they report themselves or they themselves report what happened. Who You say, who are they? Well, the people who are everywhere, the ones everywhere, all over the place. These, were to be, these would be the unbelievers that Paul himself is trying to evangelize. These are the people that Paul was trying to tell the message of the truth and relaying to them maybe even the transformation of the Thessalonians, and they already heard the reports. When these Thessalonians launched the arrow of their testimony, they probably had no idea how far it would fly. Just like you do. You have no idea. When you share your faith on that bus or at that cafe or in the... On the sidewalk or wherever it is, you have no idea how far that arrow will fly. But Paul says it reached all the way down to him. And he was trying to share his go- the gospel with others, and they were saying, You know, this sounds very, very familiar. It sounds like a story I heard about some guys up in Thessalonica. That's exactly what it was. He says, we were hearing this even from the very people we were trying to share our faith with. It's a wonderful experience whenever you're going out and you're talking to someone about the gospel. And you realize along the way that you're just another link in the chain. That God has already been preparing them by faithful testimony of faithful believers down through the ages or down through the the, the course of their life. That they have already heard from others their word, their testimony, their witness, their sharing of the faith. And what were they hearing? Well, Paul says, first of all, they were hearing about our reception. They themselves report what kind of reception we had among you, particularly in the midst of all the persecution and the resistance. They They heard about how you responded differently. They heard the contrast between all the resistance and all the rejection of all the surrounding society, how everyone else was hardened against this and their hatred against it, but you had told them how you couldn't reject it. You shared with them how it was different with you because you listened to the message and you heard it. Not just as a message of men. It came across to you that others might have rejected it as just some 
some musings of a man, but you heard it as the word of God. In fact, this is what Paul unpacks really as you move into chapter 2. He uses the same word there in verse 1, talking about that coming, or as it's translated there in in verses uh, 9 and 10, the reception. It's the same word. He says, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in much, excuse me, in the midst of much conflict. And then down in verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this was part of their report. They reported how these men from Judea came and they spoke boldly. And as they spoke, it was obvious that there was something different about what they were saying. It was obvious that there was some difference in them and some difference in their message and it didn't sound like all of the noise and the chatter that came from the rest of society it didn't sound like what they heard in their schools of philosophy and their education halls it didn't sound like all of that it was different it was the word of God and it struck them that way and they shared it that way I heard a message unlike any message I ever heard I heard a word unlike any other word I ever heard. And I've heard all these words of men, all these messages of the sages, but I want to tell you, I heard the word of God. They were sharing this. Secondly, in verse 9, Paul says, You also reported how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they reported not only their response to this word, but then how it changed them, how they basically turned. Now, this is the essence of what happened to them. They turned. And now in their context, it was turning away from idols. They had been pagan worshipers of idols with all of the trappings that came along with that. It was really a lifestyle. It It dominated their social life, their religious life. Everything they did was wrapped up in this idolatrous worship and they turned from those idols to serve the living and true God which is what the gospel always does in someone's life it produces this kind of turning this kind of repentance as we would say doesn't matter whether or not you are worshiping little chunks of wood or metal, that is, little false idols and pagan beliefs, or whether or not you idolize some ideal, some perception. Even Ephesians 5 tells us we can make idols out of greed and idols out of of, uh, immorality. Jesus tells us that we can be trapped serving mammon, serving wealth, rather than serving God. There are all kinds of things that the enemy uses to to be the vehicles of his deception and his lies in our life. Whatever we are willing to bow down to, whatever we are willing to put our trust in, whatever we're willing to orient our life around and to dictate us, he'll use it. It doesn't need to be some pagan ritual. 
But whenever the gospel invades your life, you turn from all that stuff. You turn away from it. You turn your life around. You know, this is the, um, we just passed the 500th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of a Wittenberg church by Martin Luther. And many people don't realize, but the very first one of those 95 Theses, Luther wrote this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this launched the Protestant Reformation. This closed out what we called the Dark Ages and brought about a a wave of renewal across Europe and around the world. This was Luther's attempt to recapture the gospel that was proclaimed by the Apostle Paul and by the early church, the gospel that he found in the Scripture, because he understood what Jesus said in Luke 24, 27, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name in all the nations. And this was apparently what Paul had done. He had gone to Thessalonica and he had preached to these Thessalonians and he had encouraged them not just to pray some prayer and not just to add some some word of faith, but he had called for comprehensive change in their life. To turn away from all those things that they were serving rather than serving God and to turn their life around and to begin to serve the true God. This wasn't just some temporary remorse. Sometimes it comes over a man or a woman when they feel some sense of shame over disappointing someone, being caught in something. Men and women feel remorse for any number of reasons. It's what the Bible, what Paul calls worldly sorrow. You see it all the time. The rich young ruler had it when he came to Christ wanting to know how he could enter into heaven and Jesus exposed the fact that he had truly idolatry in his heart over his own wealth. And the scripture tells us he went away sorrowful, but not saved. It was the same worldly sorrow that Judas had, who, when he betrayed Jesus, began to feel sorrowful, even suicidal. He eventually went out and hanged himself. He was sorrowful, but not saved. Paul says there's a kind of sorrow, but it leads only to further misery and further death. But godly sorrow, the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance is, Paul says, a sorrow without regrets. It's a sorrow without regrets. You say, what do you mean? I mean, all my sorrow is full of regrets. That's why I'm sorrowful. I'm sorrowful because I'm regretting, I'm sitting around thinking about what I did or what I didn't do. All I can do is battle this regret over and over and over again, just all the time in my mind. I can't get past my regrets. Well, Paul says there's a kind of sorrow that is without regrets because it's the kind of sorrow that brings about change from the inside out, real change. Real repentance. 
There's a sense of guilt to be sure, but there's also a sense of change that takes place in your heart so that your conscience is cleansed and you know that you are reconciled to Christ and you know your sins are forgiven. So it's a sorrow without this sense of regret. Westminster Catechism talks about this. It says, in repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger but also of the filth and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. This is what Paul's talking about. When he talks about them turning from idols, he says they didn't just turn, but they turned to do what? They turned to serve the living God. A, a new purpose in their life. A change from the inside. Whereas previously they served themselves. Whereas previously their life was absorbed with, with their own superstitions and whatever that superstition could do for them. Now... They had been changed from the inside and they knew that change and that change brought about a newness of life and they were filled maybe for a moment with with sorrow, but it was godly sorrow that transformed them as they began to understand the odiousness of everything they were living for. How it was contrary to God's nature, contrary to His purposes, contrary to His laws, and in rebellion against Him. And when they saw that, then all the change on the outside just comes naturally. You don't need so easily go back to your sin when it is odious to you. This was the Thessalonians. They turned from all their way of life, from all their idols, to serve the living and true God. And they told people. They shared it with people. And word got out all over the place about how their life was transformed. You love to be around it when you hear people sharing that. You love to hear their testimonies. doesn't matter if it happened last week. It doesn't matter if it happened 10, 20 years ago. It's the message of your change and your repentance that you must share with others and convey to them the power of the gospel. Thirdly, these Thessalonians also gave testimony to a new hope. Paul says, not only were they now serving God, but they were also, in verse 10, waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This was their new hope. This is their new direction, if you will. Their new hope for the future. They were waiting. They were expectant. When we say waiting, sometimes we, we, we might give this idea of inactivity, but that's really not what this is about. Sometimes we say we're waiting on something. We mean that we've stopped all that we're doing until a certain person or a certain time or a certain event arrives. But this is not what these guys were doing. They were busy, quite busy. The word was echoing forth. Everywhere they were going, they were talking about it. They were telling what God had done for them. They weren't just sitting around like a bumping along, but, but they were doing it. And as they were doing it, they were explaining to people that they had been transformed. And now there is coming a day 
when their Savior will return. And they were anticipating it, eager for it. I've been reflecting this week on how much that comes up in our conversation. Not necessarily waiting for Christ, but all the other things we're waiting for. We're always talking about how, you know, we want... Uh, this thing to arrive, or we want to get this thing over with, or we're going to, you know, have this appointment, and we're going to meet with this person, and we're going to wait for this vacation. I don't know what it is. We're always talking about the future, but how often do we insert the real focus of our lives, or what should be our lives, the eager waiting for Christ? They understood He was coming. It had been drilled into them. Now, if you think about The Thessalonian letters, if you are familiar with them at all, it's remarkable how much in these two little letters is given to the issue of what we might call eschatology. I mean, this is a church Paul has spent just a couple of months with. Whereas we might put the doctrine of last things, eschatology, we might put it at the very end of all of our discussions or we might sweep it aside as something maybe even unessential to the core of the Christian life. Paul apparently felt like it was essential enough so that in the first two months of their Christian life, he had drilled into them a kind of eschatology that became a a touch point So that in his letters, he could refer back to it in numerous ways and at numerous times because it had been at the core of his teaching, waiting for the future, waiting for the coming of the Savior. It was the orientation of their life. Now, we're in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this really should be the orientation of all of our lives. He says in that In that book, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship is there. That's where our minds should be, waiting on that event. That's where... Our hope should be not in some new political movement, not in some new wave, some new candidate. Your citizenship, while you may be a citizen of this great nation, is primarily a citizenship in heaven. Or you go over even back a few extra pages to the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, again, Paul Speaking about all Christians, he says, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You say, well, I thought we were righteous. I thought whenever Christ saved us, He clothed us in His righteousness. Yes, that is true, but that's not the end. We're waiting on the completion to be clothed upon with a righteousness in our life, just as we've been clothed in our In our inner man, we've been renewed on the inside. We're still awaiting a renewal on the outside. As Romans 8 says, the redemption of our body. We're waiting on that. 1 John 3, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It's true. We have a transformation right now. But there's so much more that hasn't even appeared. 
But we know, he says, when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. Paul obviously had placed a lot of emphasis on this when he was with the Thessalonians. During his brief stay, over and over again, drilling this into them so that he could leave after just a few months and turn around and write back to them without even much explanation. And he can say, you know what, I'm grateful that you are sounding forth the gospel. And as you're sounding it forth, what I'm hearing from people is this, that you have been radically transformed, that you've turned from your old life to a new life, and that you now are oriented around the event, the return of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You are are looking with eager anticipation for that day. He taught them to have this understanding of the coming hope of their righteousness and the coming wrath of God upon all the world from which they would be saved. They would be delivered from this wrath. And why is that? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a wrath that's coming. It's going to be poured out on all mankind. God in His holy nature may appear to be indifferent towards sin and evil, even against your sin. You may assume that you're just getting away with it, that God is not conscious or not looking or not caring, that you go on in your unbelief and you go on in your sin and and nothing ever happens. But the Scripture is clear, a day of wrath is coming. A day of wrath is coming. And the only hope that you have to be spared from it is faith in Jesus Christ. The one, Paul says, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us because He was saved, excuse me, He was raised from the dead. Because He, having defeated death, He defeated sin. Or I should say, because He defeated sin, He defeated death, because sin is the cause of death. And because of all that, He is able to deliver us from God's wrath because He delivers us from sin. And do you want to know how you can be delivered from the day of God's wrath, from the day of God's judgment? Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you believe that truth that Jesus Christ was raised by God from the dead, that He sits gloriously at the hand of God, having ascended to heaven on high, because He defeated sin on the cross and defeated death at the grave. If you believe that, you'll be saved. You too from the wrath of God. And you can look into the future with joy, with hope, with confidence, with unshakable faith. Because of His gift. That's the, power. That's the power of the gospel. That is the gospel. It's the power of God if you'll hear it, that is. If you will receive it and let God change your heart. Let Him transform you on the inside. If you stop all the pretending and all the, all the um, hypocrisy. You set aside all of the unbelief and all the rebellion. 
God will change you. Apart from that, you're destined for wrath. You may feel sorry for your sins from time to time, but you're still under His wrath. Your guilty feelings are not enough. Your occasional tears are not enough. The gospel says you need a Savior. And God provided one. He provided a Savior who came on your behalf, suffered in your place, died on a cross, and was raised again for your victory. The gospel is offered to all, and all who respond are saved. Our encouragement to you today is that that you would do as the Thessalonians did. That you'd recognize that this that you're hearing today, what you're hearing, isn't the word of men. It's the word of God that powerfully works within you when you receive it from Him. We'll close here in a moment with a word of prayer and a song. Our encouragement to you is that you would respond, that you would repent, that you would turn, and that you'd place your faith in this Savior. Stand together with me and let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're grateful for this word, thankful for the power with which it landed on our ears. We only pray that you would give us a faithfulness to let it now echo forth from us, unashamed of this gospel, because it is the power of God. We want to become imitators, examples to any and to all of what a transformed life looks like. Help us then, Lord, to let the Word of God run swiftly from our lips, that it may land on the ears of those who need to hear. Lord, we pray for those who are here this morning in whose life you are working, calling them and drawing them that the gospel would powerfully impact them today, bringing about salvation, faith, transformation, and eternal hope, and all to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.